Fully Loaded Chew is tobacco-free, long-cut, and pouches that gives you the same pack, dip, spit, and buzz that you're used to without tobacco. Fully Loaded Chew comes in nine flavors and is made with all food-grade ingredients and tobacco-free nicotine, the purest form of nicotine there is. To give us a try, head on over to FullyLoadedChew.com for a $1 can of chew with free shipping when you enter the code OUTDOOR1. O-U-T-D-O-O-R and the number one. Lastly, many outdoorsmen are trying to quit tobacco altogether and Fully Loaded Chew may be that first step. For more information on our product line, visit FullyLoadedChew.com. Welcome back to another episode of the Woodsman Podcast. This week we interview Steve Chilcote with Chilcote Forestry. He's a forester and land consultant here in central Pennsylvania. And we're going to break this episode into two parts. So this is part one. And in part one we're going to talk about uh, a little bit about Steve and get into some of the forestry types that we see in Pennsylvania, how to properly look at them for logging, we're also going to talk about the regeneration that we're looking to get in these stands depending on the forest type. We'll chat a little bit about hinge cutting and hack and squirt methods, when they're appropriate, what species they're appropriate for, and he's also going to start to touch base on invasive species management. And it's a huge problem that he finds on a lot of pro- on a lot of properties. And it's a major issue. And if you have invasives on your property, it could be something that moves the needle on the amount of wildlife that use your property, especially during daylight hours. But he's going he's gonna to touch base on, on those things first. And then our second episode that we're going to see in the coming weeks, he's going to dig a little bit more into some other invasive species. He's going to be talking about conifers on properties, how to add them, how to manage them, when and how certain species can work on your property. And he'll also go on a little bit of his experiences on properties and poor hunting strategy or the biggest properties he sees and why landowners don't meet their goals. Uh, Some of the things that we might have talked about in previous podcasts, um, just his perspective, and I I want you guys to hear him because it's a lot of good information. So before we get into this week's episode, I also wanted to keep you an update. I promise you we're not going to stay on this private land series forever. You know, some of you guys who might really enjoy this, this applies to, you're probably loving it and eating up as much of it as you possibly can, and hats off to you. Thank you for listening and and continuing, continuing to tune in. Now, for everybody else who's getting tired of this, we've got a couple of good things lined up here. We're going to be doing some episodes for public land and public land scouting. We're going to be looking at doing some shed hunting episodes, and we're also looking to get into some other species, uh, hopefully some predator hunting. And before you know it, we're going to be getting in spring gobbler and prepping for that. So sit back and enjoy this episode, and thanks for listening. All right, here with me today, I've got Steve. Steve, how do you pronounce your last name? Because I never get it right. Chilcote. Chilcote. Just like it's spelled. Yeah, just like it's spelled, but it's just like those those uh, phone announcers who can never get your name right. I'm just as bad. People try to make more out of it than what it is. (laughs) So I got Steve with me here. And uh, Steve, you are a professional forester and land consultant. Is that right? Yes, I'm a realtor, wildlife habitat consultant. Uh, my original 
degree here at Penn State was in wildlife management. And then I got into real estate. Then I got into forestry through real estate. Right. Because I worked for a big land company. Um, I did some development and uh, we would, uh, we would find higher and better use properties, you know, stuff with waterfalls and rivers. And we had lake frontage and we okay. divide some of that stuff off and sell it. So I was in charge of doing all that. And then I got really interested in forestry. And then I got invited to uh, work on my master's here at Penn State. And I got a, a master's in forestry. So you've kind of been at Penn State your, your whole entire career. Yeah, two degrees from there. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, and along the way, you're you're no different than anybody about any of us that listen to this, or you know, me myself. You're avid hunter, just the same. Yeah, yeah. I'm getting, I'm slowing down a little bit, but I, <laughs> I was crazy. Uh, I hunted all over the place. Uh, hunted all the time. Okay. All my life. Do you uh, have you? Been a little bit more interested in whitetails, or you been a little more interested in small game, or what's been your your driving force behind all that? Well, I used to have when I was a kid. Of course, I had the big dream of going to Africa and going to Alaska and all that. And I actually, after college, I went out and did some guiding in the Rockies. That was a lot of fun. And uh, so I've been elk hunting. I've been moose hunting up in Alaska, wow. and um, have never been to Africa, but maybe someday. I went to Africa for my honeymoon. It was a blast. Cool. It was. Yeah. We, um, I know a guy who goes all the time, a seed dealer. He's always going to Africa every couple of years. Wow. So with the jobs that you're doing, so you're doing some, some forestry consulting, you're doing a little bit of wildlife consulting. Uh, can you just go into a little bit more detail right now what some of them jobs look like? And t- maybe tap into you, – you have a YouTube channel too. And kind of just yeah, talk a Chilco little bit about Forestry, that. Forestry uh, YouTube channel. I have a couple of playlists on there. A couple of them are about real estate. I have a forestry uh, playlist. Then I have a food plots playlist and, you know, some things thrown in there in between. But most of the people that I work with in the field are guys who either – want to buy some land to hunt on or just bought land and they want to have somebody come in and advise them on how to make it better for hunting because we're we're shifting in this country from purchasing land as a timber investment or just a home site to recreational property for sure you know when i was a kid nobody bought land just to recreate on it was because there were so many places you could go hunting, mm-hmm. and hunting wasn't considered really important. Well, you know, going off on a tangent here, but no, that's okay. It's, my, it's true. My father really frowned upon wasting your time hunting. <laughs> he thought <laughs> you should be working every single day except opening day of deer season and maybe a couple of Saturdays pheasant hunting. <laughs> and that, that's all we did until I could hunt on my own. Oh, how the times have changed. And now, yeah, it's completely different. People are very serious about their land and and, uh, the deer that are on that land. And people have gone into uh, the food plotting big time. Uh, I was kind of around at the beginnings of 
mossy oak and what they were doing with seeds and mm-hmm. bringing seeds from New Zealand and planting these exotics, you know, like the brassicas. You know, I didn't even know what the heck that stuff was, but, you know, back in the 90s. And, uh, yeah, there was a huge boom, and it's still going. It's still increasing. So I do a lot Certainly. of food plot work. Okay. One of the toughest jobs I have is is where folks want to have a food plot, but they can't because they're, you know, in Pennsylvania, you either have farmland or you have ridge or high plateau. So in some of these ridges, if you go south of here, this is all ridge and valley. So you either have uh, sandstone up there or shale or right. both. And then in the valleys is your limestone soils where you can actually grow crops. But I tell people all the time there's a reason why there's no farm up here because the early settlers knew where to put their farm and where absolutely you don't put farms. So my job is to get the land cleared, get it de-rocked as best we can, Mm -hmm. and then start amending the soil. So it's a long, expensive, arduous project, and a lot of people don't understand what they're getting into a lot of times. But what I can do for a lot of clients, if they have timber, I can set up a timber sale, and then we take the profits and rotate that back into the land and make the habitat better. So logging can improve deer habitat just to start with, and then we take profits from a timber sale and we build food plots. I I started out just putting food plots in all my log landings. Mm -hmm. That's how I got kind of interested in the food plotting thing. And then once in a while, you'd get a timber sale on a guy's place who had an old field. And then I'd be like, well, why don't you do something with this field? Mm -hmm. Because you don't have any cattle on it or anything. And um, once they found out what it caused to to, uh, lime it and uh, kill the rank grass that's on there and they... Many times they're just like, what are you talking about? I'm not going to spend that, that kind of money on on a uh, food plot. But that, that started to change, and now people call me specifically to get a food plot going. And that's great. Um, and that kind of really leads into what we're talking about right now in this series. So kind of to recap you with what we've been doing, we started a series at the beginning of this year, and we're really talking about, you know, recapping your hunting season. You know, I had uh, – had some people I've talked with here recently that had poor experiences, kind of diminishing returns on that hunting property. And, you know, every everyone that I've talked to, they want to try this, they want to try that, and they don't have a lot of direction. That's where somebody like you comes in to advise that. So, you know, the first two episodes of this series, we kind of talked about uh, conceptual access, making good access that's going to make sense to keep deer from seeing you, hearing you, smelling you on your property and keep that property fresh as long as you possibly can. And then we kind of talked about the framework of food plots. And, you know, I think what you were talking about with, you know, creating food plot programs, number one, that were affordable, but actually giving people an idea of what that cost, what kind of investment that is um, and setting up that structure. But those two things that we started in that first part, you know, if you've got, let's say it's a 40, 50 acre parcel, you might be talking about less than 10, probably less than five acres of your property where you're trying to associate, you know, food plots that are steering deer movement, creating daylight movement, a a daylight food source, and then your access to try to prevent that. Really what we're, what I really wanted to pick your brain about, you talked about that just briefly is what are we doing with the rest of that property? Okay. How are we making it affordable that we're, you know, 
cash flowing in a sense with uh, making wildlife improvements that we're not uh, breaking the bank. And then uh, what are the things that we need to be doing in those forest types to make quality cover, quality browse? Because that's that's the meat and potatoes of this whole thing. <clears throat> so um, Yeah, you know, that's a good point because food plots, we must always consider a food plot a supplemental. It's not ever going to uh, provide a deer with all the food that it needs year-round. Mm-hmm. It's just a supplement to what's already out there. A food plot, and I've had this experience, does you no good if your forest management is not up to snuff. So most of the properties that I see, especially in Pennsylvania, have been high-graded multiple times. And I'm working on a large project right now that's actually spanning two years of cutting just pulpwood. And luckily, the last time they cut it, white oak was not really worth anything, so they left it. Mm -hmm. So now I have a bunch of 12 to 14-inch white oak to work with, and there's a lot of it there. So I can thin everything down, get all the junk out of the woods, and I picked only the best white oaks and some maple, Mm -hmm. but not a lot of maple in that stand. But I just picked the high-quality trees to keep everything else goes. So now there's tons of browse, and we put in some food plots with the money that we got from the pulpwood. So it's kind of a – it's a loser as far as making money. The guy is not making money. In fact, he has to – put money into the project to get it finished. But he's not as far in the hole. But we put in about $20,000 worth of food plots on the property. Plus the whole property is now a food plot because it's starting to regenerate and we got enough land on 600 acres. We were able to cut about 400 of that. Uh, And then the rest is swamp. So you can imagine you got swamps, regenerated forests, and food plots. And he's quite happy with the, you know, he killed a turkey, you know, a big buck this year, had a chance at a big bear. Mm. Um, really happy with with the results. You created a lot of diversity and a lot of edge within that system to make it highly attractive. Now, you'd said about high grading. So in case somebody's just absolutely clueless to, to forestry, what were you referring to with high grading? You're talking yeah. about cutting the best, letting the rest? Pretty much. That's, that's one way to put it. The, in the past, um, people have sold timber either, and sometimes with a consultant, sometimes not. Mm-hmm. The worst thing you could possibly do is sell your timber to a logger and let him take whatever he wants, mm-hmm. a logger or a sawmill, because they want to get everything they can possibly get while they're there. If you hire a forester and you, say, and you have to communicate with your forester how, how you want it done, the forester can mark that such that in 20 years you can cut it again. And that's what I try to do. So what most people do, though, is they'll call up a uh, logger and say, hey, I want to take my timber off. I want to sell my timber. Well, what the hell does that mean? <laughs> you know, you just – Cutting the guy loose on your property, and and I've seen so many destroyed properties. Just the timber's ruined, and the habitat's no good either because they didn't take any of the pulpwood. So now you have 
what we call green junk mm-hmm. growing. All the trees are poor. Uh, around here, the valuable trees are oaks. So okay. now you don't even have acorns. And sometimes it can create deer cover. Sometimes it doesn't. It all depends on what the stocking level is. But most of the time, your quality has gone down. And I get on properties that have been high graded three times, mm. and there's just nothing left. And and now you're full of invasive grasses, which we can talk about, um, grasses and uh, shrubs that are taking over the forest right now. Things that deer don't eat, can't use them for anything. Right. There's no trees growing there. Um so we have that problem. So that's what high grading does. If you're not careful about how you go about a timber sale, you know, I often tell landowners you can't put a tree back once it's cut down. So mm-hmm. you got to be careful. You have to think through every tree that you mark. you got to look around and see why you're marking that tree to take. And that's where a good forester comes in. That is where a good forester comes in. So I'm going to kind of give you an analogy. Let's say, um, you know, I'm just some Joe Schmo. I don't, you know, don't really know much about forestry, but I, I bought this property and I want it 100% for deer hunting. That is the whole sole reason why I have this property. Um, kind of a dominant oak hickory forest, you know, um, and I, I heard or I read somewhere online that you're going to get for a good quality whitetail property. You're going to get one good cutting out of it. And then after that, you're not going to get that. Um, kind of, kind of an interesting concept, and I, I don't necessarily say I agree with it, but I've heard that a lot. I, I'd love your your take on that because there's this, I think, a misconception that you can't have your cake and eat it too when it comes to managing your forest and also managing it for whitetails. What are your thoughts? Well, you can have it all, but you, it depends on what you're starting out with. Yeah. I know of one guy who, if I were him, I would sell his property and get something better to hunt on. Okay. Frankly. What kind of property is that that you that, that comes to your mind? Like as far as well, forest that, type, age of the forest type thing? That place has a lot of problems. Okay. Mostly it's um it's the neighbors. I see. They they want to ride their four wheelers all over the place and he lets them cut through his place to get to their land that's on they have land on either side. Mm-hmm. So now you have like a racetrack. Up sure. and down, and they're up and down all day long, and um, you can't have a big buck around there. It won't happen. Certainly, as they know what's up in the middle of October when oh, all that traffic starts up. Then you can't you can't keep a big buck bedded yeah. down in without it for sure. Um, so that's one property that comes to mind. Um, that property, however, has a ton of big oak on it. Okay. And he doesn't want to cut it because he thinks that acorns are the be all and end all mm-hmm. of deer food. But I can tell you that acorns are one of the most unreliable food sources in the woods. Without a doubt. Uh, not a big fan of managing for oak because I would rather manage for diversity, young timber that is less than six feet tall, so deer can browse on it. Mm-hmm. And you can maintain that, that type of timber stand with uh, brush hogs and uh, mulchers and things mm-hmm. like that. Um, 
I would rather sell some oak and build a food plot because you're going to get reliable food sources that you can draw a deer to mm-hmm. every single year. And those deer grow up around there and, and bucks will move into that area and they know where the food is. They know where the does are hanging out mm-hmm. and it concentrates the deer and makes them flow a certain way so that you can hunt them. Sure. And that's kind of what we were really talking about in our last two episodes was number one, making sure pressure is managed to hold the deer there because you're not going to chase them. Number two, that consistent food source. And we talked about that necessarily in in sense of food plots, but really your daytime food, daytime cover is coming from that forestry generation. Now, we talked about keeping and holding deer, pressure and food. So we talked about that regeneration. We we go to the, the, the property you described with some oak managing for oak, but getting good regeneration. People really don't understand or really know what's coming back in Pennsylvania. Like when you go to some of them cuts and you're trying to keep stuff under six feet, like what are you trying to replace it with that's going to be quality for whitetails? Well, it's very difficult to regenerate on small properties Mm -hmm. without deer-proof fencing. So, you know, and it's a real big problem because Sometimes they get a fence funded through NRCS and we put up a fence, but now you can't hunt that area. Okay. The regeneration is coming up and the funded fences from the government, they want to have timber growing. Right. They're managing boards per foot. They want it above deer browse height before you can take the fence down. But that's not what we want. We Mm -hmm. want to fence the, the deer out. Plant shrubs that are missing from the landscape, keep up with the invasives, and then have new trees growing and, you know, treat it like a garden Mm -hmm. inside the fence and then take the fence down. I like to use about five years. Okay. So if you, if you have to have a fence up, if your contract with NRCS says you have to leave the fence up for 15 years, I tell them, forget it. Right. Now the problem, that we have, and I have areas like this that I tried to regenerate without a fence, and the deer ate all the trees, mm. virtually everything, even low browse species, you know, okay. low, uh, low desirable browse species like birch, cherry, uh, that stuff didn't grow, and then you end up with ferns. So now you got a fern problem because of the deer. So now you got to start from scratch. You got to kill the ferns. Try to eliminate the deer somehow. Mm-hmm. But unless you can, like, for instance, up in in the state land, when you go north of here, uh, there's a really good silviculture guy working on those properties where we had gypsy moth kill. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of standing dead timber up there. And he's doing huge clear cuts. He's just cutting 100 acres at a time. Then they bring uh, a crew in from South America, and they plant uh, pines and spruce. Interesting. So in Pennsylvania, the climax forest is actually pine and hemlock, but hemlock's getting the woolly adelgid problem, so mm-hmm. we don't want to plant that. So they plant Norway spruce, which is something that's a great tree that just nothing kills it. It grows everywhere, and it's hard to, it's just hard to beat. Now, white pine is native to the area and also doesn't have a lot of problems. So what you end up with 
um, when you can clear cut a hundred acres and give out lots and lots of DMAP tags, there's hardly any deer up there. And people are upset. They're upset about that. You know, there's not a lot of deer, but the deer population is actually correct for the range. So now trees can grow. And he's getting excellent results on regenerating oak and, uh, and maple and other species. But now what, now if that was a deer property at this point, I would be going in and working on putting in food plots. I would be putting in some, uh, trails with a forestry mulcher to get deer to move a certain way. Sure. When they're bedding in there. Cause right now you got a hundred acre clear cut that's dog hair thick. You can't see a deer 10 yards away. So that's a problem. So you have to, you have to, like I said before, nurture these regeneration areas like it's a garden. Constantly have to be weeding, adding <clears throat> new things and keeping the deer at bay somehow. Even if you have to go and get a bunch of DMAT tags mm-hmm. and just hammer the does for a while to get some mouths off the range and then let your population come back up when you had better food. You said about hinge cutting and, and hack and Well, sport. you wanted to talk about hinge cutting a little bit. Uh, hinge cutting, I've had really good results with some hinge cutting. Two things you have to keep in mind when you do it is that you have to have the species that are going to respond well to that. So your, your uh, species that will hinge are going to be Unfortunately, your oaks, hickories, things like that. Black gum is a good one. Black gum is a really highly preferred browse. Very. Uh, red maple is not a good hinging species, but in the summer, when things are soft, you can get it to hinge over fairly well. This time of year, you can't. It'll just break off. So timing, species, think about it. Do you really need it? Sometimes you just make a giant mess. When is it needed in your eyes? Well, when there's just absolutely no side cover and you need it right now. Okay. Okay. And you don't want to log. If you can't, if logging's not feasible, hinge cutting might be a good option for you. If you've got a very, what I've noticed, Steve, is when you've got a very, very highly dominated canopy of mature trees and then you try to Throw hinge cutting in there. A lot of times, those hinge trees don't survive, and they don't actually do the purpose oh, yeah. of a long-term it's, it's hinge. Too dark for them to regrow. And you know, the other thing is, it's tough to get a tree to come down when you have a thick canopy because it'll get caught in the other trees. You won't very dangerous. Then you start getting into danger territory, right? Because you're struggling trying to get this thing to come down, and that's when people get hurt. Without a doubt. So logging would be my first option if you can, if there's enough material on your land that a logger can come in, then you can sit and watch football and, and let it all happen. You know, it's it's the easiest thing you can do, and you may be able to put some money in your pocket. Certainly, and and don't forget to rotate some of your money back into your land. Right. So many people that I've done timber sales for. They look at me like I'm crazy if I tell them, you know, why don't you take some of that money and do some spraying? You got some bad invasives here. And they're like, oh, I don't do that. 
I already spent the money. I built the shed. I bought a new truck. The money's all gone. Right. Paid off on mortgage or whatever. But it, just for a couple thousand set aside out of 50. Sure. You can't do that? Come on. Right. Um, hack and squirt. That's another one that gives a lot of common, you know, talk in the whitetail world. When is it actually a good use and when is it actually a really, really bad use? Well, there seems to be some argument about hack and squirt anymore. And I'm not sure why, you know, because again, it's good in some places and not so good in others. Like I did some hack and squirt last year on an area that I regenerated and it came up all birch. So I wanted to adjust that. So I started hacking and squirting the birch. The reason I used hack and squirt and I, and I did some basil in there on the smaller trees. Um, basil bark application is another good way to kill a tree. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that in that area, there's good seed in the seed bank because I had planted shrubs there 15, 20 years ago and they're all gone because the birch shaded it out, but the seed is there. So I just wanted to get sunlight to the forest floor. I don't really need the side cover that cutting would give you. And a lot of times, especially with birch, you can drop, and I did drop a lot of birch in there with a saw as well. But I didn't want to cut all the birch because then you have such a mess that deer don't want to use it. Exactly. So when you hack and squirt, you're you're kind of making a gradual transition. And it's also extremely safe. It's really hard to hurt yourself when you're doing hack and squirt. And you could, it's nice. I mean, you could just walk through the woods with your hatchet on a Saturday and enjoy yourself and uh, kill some trees. But species specific is a really important thing. I mean, you got to really make sure you know why you're, why you're killing that tree with hack and squirt and what you're replacing it with. Yeah. What you may want to do is before you even get into killing trees, go through the woods Hire a forester for a day. Tell them what your goal is. Or just do it yourself. Go through the woods. And and you may even want to take a, a can of forestry paint and paint your trees that you, you know, you species it out. Make sure you're not killing the wrong things. Like um, if you have some nice black cherry, for instance, or you have aspen, you want to, you want to have that aspen in there. And if you have uh you find a nice oak tree. I have a spot where I have a couple of uh, American chestnuts mm. that I don't want to accidentally cut. So then you can mark those and then, then you can just kind of relax and go through the woods and just hack everything. <clears throat> and, and then, you know, just let the, the seed bank do its thing and start growing blackberries and hopefully not ferns again, but. You know, hopefully you get some blackberries and some viburnums. I, I had some really good results in that stand. Cranberry viburnum. Okay. And uh, silky dogwood, uh, things like that. As soon as you cut and you start getting regeneration and deer focus on it, it's like a giant food plot. They all come in there and start eating on it. And if it's too small, then they just eat you out of house and home. To the point where the next thing that fills into that seed base is, is invasives, right? Usually. Yeah. 
So one of the big problems and one of the things I called you about and talked to you on the phone about um, a couple months ago was a problem that we have on, on one of the properties that, that I hunt. And that's Japanese still grass. But <laughs> Japanese still grass is just one of many invasive problems. Well, I used to think that things like barberry and uh, autumn olive were a big deal. Mm -hmm. I don't even look at them anymore because Japanese still grass has worked its way into every every nook and cranny. And the further south you go, like down where you guys are, yeah, it's crazy down there. And what's happening is that stilt grass is able to travel in dust. The seeds will get on dust of equipment, four-wheelers. And I really think it's four-wheelers that are the worst culprit because people, they go from one place to the other and they drive all their trails, and that's where you see the stilt grass. It's, you know, it's on the trails. And if you have a logging job, it comes in on the equipment mm -hmm. and basically just plant it all over the place. So they're disturbing soil and putting stilt grass seeds down, and it just goes nuts. It's too mm -hmm. bad that deer don't like it because otherwise it would be a miracle food plot thing. Now, there's a guy who I did some work for. I did a forest management plan for him, and he does a lot of work on his property. He plants a lot of oak trees. He propagates them and plants them out, puts them in tubes. You know, he's really working on it place mm. and he told me that he mixed up some kool-aid and sprayed it on still grass and, and the deer ate it so i'm going to experiment with that and i'm going to try to come up with a concoction that i can spray on still grass that would make it attractive to deer and see if they'll eat it well that's interesting but right now i mean we we end up with a deer selected forest in other words the deer eat everything they like to the point where it can't grow anymore, like stump sprouts. Mm. You know, that got to be a little bit of a fad recently where they would call them mineral stumps, right? Mm -hmm. A mineral stump is nothing more than a, a stump sprout. You know, you cut a tree down that's it, uh, a vigorous sprouter, like an oak. Yeah, uh, That's candy to a deer. It's just the best browse there is. And I'm, I'm sure you've seen stumps in the woods that just have like a little brush going around the outside of the stump. And right. that's from deer just every year picking off the buds. Mm -hmm. But that's a tree that should be regrowing and should be 10 feet tall, but deer eat it. And after a while, it, it can't uh, feed the roots anymore because it's not putting out any leaves, and it does. Mm. The, uh, well, the, the big thing that I've noticed with stiltgrass is not only the fact that they don't eat it, and not only the fact that it's choking out beneficial species that deer have, but it, it gets so thick that whitetails don't feel comfortable maneuvering through it just because of their lack of being able to see where they can go through. So now you have mm -hmm. a you have a, a forest plan put together to remove some canopy, get some light to the to the soil, get something to regenerate, and now you've got this giant mess of stilt grass. So in this situation, Steve. Um, we're talking about a lot of work, but if you really are dedicated and you want to make that change in your property and convert that to something that's beneficial for wildlife, what, what are we looking at doing to fix that? Well, I have a project right now that I'm working on that um, the deer pretty much ate everything on the forest floor. Still grass took off 
and covered the entire place. There's 50 acres of solid stilt grass and giant trees. So I went in with a pre-emergent application of housed herbicide mm-hmm. two Aprils ago and sprayed it, and then I followed up with a glyphosate application on anything that survived. So I, it's all brown, right? It looks like hay laying there. Uh, that was a mistake because we did a heavy harvest in there, and from the soil disturbance, it churned up seeds that were in the seed bank and made a lot of, you know, exposed a lot of mineral soil, and now we're back to knee-high stillgrass, mm. the whole the whole place in one year. Stillgrass seed can last for several years in the soil. If you let it go to seed, if you see the flowers and it's going to seed, you're starting over. So you have to spend at least three years heavily spraying that stuff and just keep at it, keep at it, and never let it go to seed. And you can get ahead of it. I have one property owner who got serious about it. He has me down there every year, spot spraying, things like mile-a-minute weed, Mm. stilt grass. He knows he has 500 acres. He knows where every piece of stilt grass is on the 500 acres. And he drives me around and shows it to me, and then we spray it. But he's on top of it. I mean, he doesn't have a problem. He gets really good regen down there. It's down in Bedford County. Okay. And really, there's not a ton of deer, and we have so much food available on that property that they can't eat it all. He's doing really well on his regen, and uh, can't get him to log the place the way I'd like to log it. But we did a little bit of chainsaw work, got okay. you know where where we got it thickened up. The deer hang in there. Before before we get carried away with a couple other vegetation types, let's let's stick on that invasive tangent for just a second. So you know you, you brought up a couple big ones. Mile minute's a big one. I've seen that take over some terrible forests. Same thing with Japanese stiltgrass. All the properties you tour throughout the state. What are some of the what what else are some of the biggest problems, and how do we combat those if we have a whitetail parcel that's polluted with them? Well, right now the big ones are fern. Mm. which is, you know, they're native ferns. But the thing with fern is that uh, hay-scented ferns and the other rhizomatous ferns, in other words, they they send out rhizomes and they, they have a mat underneath the ground that pretty much fills all the space. Mm. And then what you see in the summertime is beautiful fronds blowing in the breeze. That's just the vegetative part of it. There's a huge plant down underneath the soil and that stuff prevents anything else from growing so that's a huge problem but the thing with fern is it's pretty easy to kill you know you just put some glyphosate on it and you're you're good to go sure still grass like i said because of the seed it's a little tougher um and then when you go south of here like as soon as you go over seven mountains it's a little bit different climate. So you guys have a little bit warmer climate in the southern PA. Mm-hmm. So now I've seen kudzu down there. Okay. Um, still grass is rampant, of course. Um, mile a minute is a huge problem, and it grows so fast. I mean, they don't, they don't call it mile a minute for nothing. <laughs> 
Um, you know, that stuff, I think it puts on eight, nine feet a year. Yeah. And then again, once it makes seeds, birds come in and get the seeds and poop them out and it spreads all over. Mm-hmm. And that will take over your world. And it sucks because it's got those little barbs on it and it gets so thick. You can't walk through anything that it's growing on. And nothing really uses it. Birds might eat the seeds. Be on the lookout for part two, which is going to be coming up here in the near future. We're also going to be having a couple other episodes that I don't think you want to miss. Thanks. Take care. We'll see you.